0: So we are in the seventh week of a nine-week sermon series on one of Paul's letters, his letter to the Ephesians. And as I mentioned last week, at this point in the letter, Paul has arrived at a very practical part of his instruction. He's, he's no longer talking about ideas, he's talking about putting them into practice. And I mean that word quite literally, practice, because the spiritual life requires practice. Being a a Christian is not merely intellectually believing the right things. You believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You believe that the resurrection actually happened, et cetera, et cetera. That's not Christianity. That's just memorizing some facts. Christianity is when you put your knowledge into practice. And I gave you an example last week, getting a driver's license. It's one thing, of course, to pass the written exam, it's quite another thing to go out into a car with an instructor, instructor and drive that car on the road, in traffic, in Philadelphia. <laughs> you know, the written exam requires head knowledge, but driving on a real road in a real car takes skill. And that doesn't come naturally. That takes practice. So how does one practice Christianity? Of course, there are lots of ways. You, you do things you come to worship, you engage in fellowship, you read the Bible, you practice mission work, you know, even when you don't necessarily feel like it, you do it anyway. All of those things are part of, I think, a necessary practice of being a Christian. But above all of those things, there is another activity that throughout the history of the church has always been held up as the most important activity that any Christian can do, and that's prayer. Prayer, our tradition tells us, is the most central activity in the Christian life, and it is very much a practice. It's not easy. It doesn't come intuitively. It's kind of like lifting weights. It takes commitment. It takes instruction. It's a skill that you develop over time. You have to grow your prayer muscles. And I know for a fact that many Christians struggle with this. They try to pray and they get frustrated. They haven't been taught any of the traditional forms of prayer. They may not even know what it's okay to pray for. People close their eyes and they try to speak to God and nothing happens. And then they get distracted. They don't hear God's voice and they wonder, is there anything that's even happening? They wonder, am I just talking to myself here? I want to start today by acknowledging that prayer can be difficult, but also so are all the other things that change us for the better. Weightlifting is difficult. Becoming a kinder person is difficult. Becoming a better parent or a better spouse or a better friend is difficult. And yet if you can develop a practice in which you pray on a daily basis, it is the single most transformative thing you can do as a Christian because prayer is where we encounter God directly. Prayer is where we drink from the well of living waters. Prayer is where the soul finds the peace it so desperately desires. So today we're going to talk about prayer because at this point in Paul's letter we come upon one of his prayers. Now you may remember that he has been talking about his sufferings. We looked at this last week. Paul wrote this letter from prison. He was on the way to being executed and yet in the midst of horrific hardship, Paul offers what I think is one of the most heartfelt, beautiful prayers I have ever heard. I would ask you to listen closely to his words. Let these beautiful words sink into your heart, because this is the kind of prayer that everyone needs to hear. Paul says this to the Ephesians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we pray for your divine illumination of our hearts and minds, that Paul's prayer would show us how to be closer to you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So as I often do, I want to make three points in my sermon today. I want to argue that Paul's prayer shows us posture, personhood, and purpose. How's that for alliteration? Paul's prayer, posture, personhood, and purpose. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Point number one, there's another P. Point number one, posture. Paul begins his prayer by saying this, I kneel before the Father. Apparently, Paul prays on his knees. Now, I think this takes on added meaning when we remember where he is praying. He's in prison. Imagine for a moment what it might feel like to kneel on a dirt floor in a prison cell in ancient Rome. Imagine the gritty rocks cutting into the skin of your knees. Imagine the awful smells of the prison the noises of the prisoners and guards. What is the point of getting on his knees? It certainly wasn't to find a comfortable position. The point is that Paul understood that when you approach God, you are to take a posture of obedience because you recognize that you are addressing a power that is so much greater than you are. When Moses encountered God in the burning bush, God said to him these words, Moses, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Kneeling is kind of like taking off our shoes. It's saying, God, I understand that you are the greatest reality there is. I understand that although in this very moment I am physically in my office or I'm in my living room, I am encountering nothing less than the creator of the universe. You are the ultimate reality. Therefore, I assume a posture of respect, and humility. Now, the message here is not that you have to pray on your knees. I mean, some people might have trouble with that, but I think that if you can do it, you should try because the body has wisdom that the mind doesn't, and when you assume a posture of respect and humility You are living physically the wisdom of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me because God is the ultimate reality. There was a woman named Eddie Hillesum who lived in the Netherlands in the 1940s. She was a Jewish spiritual writer. She was murdered by the Nazis in 1943. In the years before she was arrested and deported, she kept a remarkable diary in which she wrote down her prayers, and I want you to listen to what she said about the act of kneeling on your knees. She said, a desire to kneel down sometimes pulses through my body, or rather, it is as if my body has been meant and made for the act of kneeling. Sometimes in moments of deep gratitude, kneeling down becomes an overwhelming urge, head deeply bowed, hands before my face. I so love that line, my body has been meant and made for the act of kneeling. I think that she's saying that the way to be authentically human, to be true to the way we were designed by God, is not to play God, but to be obedient to God, to acknowledge God's extraordinary power. And the interesting thing, again, is that Paul is doing this from prison. Some people might have resented God, For allowing this injustice to happen to them, Paul finds prison, yet another reason to be humble before God. I'll give you another example. This also took place during the Holocaust. Some of you know the name Dietrich Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Christian minister who was arrested for being uh, part of a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He was also put to death by the Nazis. The day that he was executed, uh, another prisoner watched him. Before he was taken out to the gallows, he watched him pray in his cell, and he later recorded his memory. This is what this other prisoner wrote. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison guard, Garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps of the gallows. His death ensued in a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Paul and Eddie Hillisum and Dietrich Bonhoeffer all faced forces of evil murderous, dark forces. And in the face of that darkness, they sought God on their knees from a position of humility, acknowledging that God is the greatest reality there is. And yet this immense, overwhelming reality that we can't possibly come to understand, how does he come to us? What they all understood is that he comes to us in the form of a person. And that's the second P, right, in my three-point list. That God comes to us in the form of a person and that the God we encounter in prayer is a personal God. Now this is a, this is a tough one for a lot of modern people. They don't want to anthropomorphize God, right? They don't want to pretend that God is a person if he's not really a person. How can the mysterious force behind all of creation actually be a person? Isn't God maybe something else? Maybe like an energy, a force field of some kind? That's sort of the God of Star Wars, the force, right? Which doesn't seem like a person. But I would just ask you a question. When Paul and Eddie Hillisom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer kneeled and prayed, who do you think they were praying to? Do you think they were praying to a faceless energy field? Some sort of nameless, faceless, impersonal force? Is that what they were praying to in their prayers? Or do you think they were expecting to meet God personally as a mind, a soul, Someone who could respond to them, someone who might have feelings for them, someone who could relate to them and come to know them in the way that a person could. This is a critical point when we're talking about prayer, because if you have the desire to grow closer to God in prayer, you have to understand that on the other side of that conversation, there is a person who is trying to speak to you. And if you don't understand that God is a person, prayer simply can't work because you really can't have an intimate relationship with a force field. It's like praying to a brick wall. You can try to pray to a brick wall, but guess what will happen? That brick wall will simply echo back what you tell it. Your words will bounce back to you, and you might even think that they're God's words. And, of course, there's a great danger in that. That is the danger of having an impersonal God, that you can make God into whatever you want. And you can think to yourself, well, God told me to do the exact thing that I wanted in my own life. Isn't that amazing? Eugene Peterson, another great minister, he argues that this is why if you want to meet the real God, you have to base your understanding of God not in your own whims, but in Scripture. Because Scripture shows us what God is actually like. Who is this person that we meet in prayer? What does he like? What does he dislike? What does he want from us? Scripture tells us the answer to those questions. Here's what Peterson says. If we are left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing. But what is critical is that instead we speak to the God who actually speaks back to us. There's a difference between praying to an unknown God whom we hope to discover in our praying versus praying to a known God Revealed in Jesus Christ. In the first case, we indulge our appetite for religious fulfillment. In the second, we practice obedient faith. The first is a lot more fun, but the second's a lot more important. And then he says this. What is essential in prayer is not that we learn how to express ourselves, but that we learn to answer God. Now, I think that this is something we often overlook when life is going well. But when you're Bonhoeffer or Eddie Hillisum or Paul and you're facing certain death, that's when you don't wanna just hear your voice bouncing back to you. You wanna get to know the real God who's actually there. And that brings us to the third P in my sermon today, purpose. What's the purpose of prayer? Why do we approach God in prayer? Is it just to get things from God? Is it to heal sickness or to make money? What is God supposed to do for us? Here's an interesting thing. When you look at all of the many prayers of Paul across all of his letters in the New Testament, Paul never prays for outcomes. He offers so many prayers, but he never prays for healing or for any change in the circumstances of his audience. What he prays for time and time again is for Christians to get to know God better, to grow closer to the person of God. And this is even more remarkable when you think about everything that his audience faced. Not only did he face so much danger, but all of his audience did too. Why did Paul not pray for God to remove all of these hardships? I think it comes down to something that was beautifully expressed by the great uh, Presbyterian novelist Frederick Buechner. It's a quote that I included in our bulletin this morning. Here's what Buechner wrote. He said, "God does not give us answers; He gives us Himself." That is an extraordinary insight. God does not give us answers, he gives us himself. He is the answer to our questions. A relationship with him is the answer to our questions. And so the purpose of prayer is to grow closer to God. It's not to make life easier. It's to have a relationship with the ground of all being so that we are resting in the truth. Now, I think this is what Paul is trying to say to us when he writes the following. I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you may grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Isn't this what Bonhoeffer wanted? He knew he was going to the gallows. He knew there was no way to avoid that faith, and yet he was on his knees praying to God. What else could he have been praying for than a closer connection with his creator? It helps us when we understand the context of Paul's prayer. Of course, he was praying to Gentiles who had very recently been pagan. And in the pagan religions, the only way to approach God was transactionally, because this is how the pagan gods operated. People feared them because they were so fickle. And so pagans were constantly sacrificing to these gods because they were afraid that if they didn't, bad things would happen. If the rains didn't come, it was because Zeus was angry. If a hurricane came, it was because someone didn't properly make a sacrifice to Poseidon. Their default mode of thought was that God was conditional, that God did things for them if they did things for God. And so Paul is showing them a radically different conception of God a God of unconditional love who not only does not demand things from them, but who went to the cross himself to save them. Paul says that is a love that surpasses human knowledge. He knew that it did not make sense in the Greek sense of wisdom that the creator of the universe, the reality behind all reality, the subjective person on the other side of prayer would die on a cross. And therefore, the first thing that Paul has to pray for is that they would simply, in some way, come to terms with this radical reality of love. That if they kneeled and they became humble and they began to approach God as the person that he really is, they might begin a relationship with him that was grounded not in transactional love, but in unconditional love. Now, after they then grasped the gospel, of course, their lives would change. Because that's what agape love does. It takes people out of their selfishness and navel-gazing and it orients them outward to the world. And so the purpose of Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians would grow closer to God's love. And I would argue that this should be the point of every one of our prayers. It might look something like this. Every day at the beginning of the day, you make a prayer and you dedicate the day to God. That for the next 16 hours, you will try to do His will, the will as it's revealed to us in Scripture. And every night before bed, you check in with God again and you talk about how the day went. And always to humble ourselves before the God who loves us in a way that we can never understand. You do that every single day, and it becomes a practice. And slowly, your life changes. Now, you may want more practical advice on how to pray. I hope you do. Come and talk to me. Talk to Pastor Rebecca. We have resources we can share. We would be happy to pray with you. I would just remind you that prayer is a practice. It's not glamorous. It's not always going to be fun because it's kind of like any other relationship. It works if you put in the work. But the rewards are worth it. So how about we end in prayer? Glorious God, Paul has shown us a way to approach you, seeking first and foremost to know your love and to do your will. We pray that you would transform both our hearts and our minds, that they might conform to the life of Christ within us and within this community. We pray this in his holy name, amen.